Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Right now, looking at the radar, there's at least uh, 15 different storms in Alabama, Mississippi, and into Tennessee that have tornado warnings and radar show the possibility of strong tornadoes with all of these storms. It was 5.18 a.m. on April 27, 2011. Four tornadoes had already touched down that morning in Alabama. The fifth tore up the main street of Cordova, a rural town about 50 miles north of Tuscaloosa. The local fire station collapsed, trapping fire and rescue trucks inside the garage. The only medical clinic in town was demolished. As people across the rest of the state still slept soundly, downtown Cordova disappeared into the dark funnel of an EF3 tornado. It was all over by 7 a.m. The sun rose over a blue sky. People in Tuscaloosa and Birmingham turned on the news and heard that 31 tornadoes had touched down overnight across the southern state. Back in Cordova, people emerged from the remains of their homes. Electricity was out. They tried to call for help, but the surrounding towns were dealing with their own damage. The town was cut off, isolated, and its emergency warning services were down. There would be no warning when the next tornado arrived. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
This is the second part of our story on the wave of storms that devastated the southern United States in 2011. Known as the Super Outbreak, it became the costliest tornado outbreak ever recorded. This week, we'll trace the tornado's path through Alabama and Mississippi. As they careen through these states, we'll show how the inhabitants tried to endure the inconceivable power of a tornado superstorm and how after the storms passed, the states were never quite the same. By mid-afternoon on April 27, 2011, James Spann was exhausted. He was the chief meteorologist at ABC 3340 in Birmingham, Alabama, and he had been broadcasting live for nearly 48 hours straight. There was no time for a break. The superstorms had already produced over a hundred twisters. As Spann reviewed the Doppler radar projected onto the enormous green screen behind him, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. There were so many hook echoes, the radar fingerprint of a tornado, that he couldn't keep them all on screen. Up north, two EF-5 twisters born in Mississippi had crossed the state line into rural Alabama. Another EF-4 tornado was about to wreak havoc in Georgia. But those were out of his jurisdiction. The Huntsville affiliate would issue warnings. Span had to focus on what was coming towards Tuscaloosa and Birmingham. His voice caught as he zoomed in on one of the massive swirls of bright red on the radar, hovering over a small dot labeled Cullman. The small town was being obliterated in real time. It's on the ground. Not yet. It's right over in that field. Rover, right over across from the store. Keeps going over there, we'll be all right. Wow, it just hit something over there. It turned real black. Span turned back to the camera and thought of his terrified audience watching the newscast while they hunkered down in their homes and businesses. His voice might be the last thing some of them would ever hear over the deafening wind. Pointing to the swirl on the green screen radar, Span said, that's a debris ball. That's the radar beam bouncing off of the stuff in the tornado. Cars could be in there, boards, bricks, glass, nails, shrapnel. Span didn't want to imagine what all of that debris hurling through the air at 190 miles an hour might do to an unprotected human body. He again reminded everyone watching to get to a safe place. He watched as two of the biggest swirls lurched northeast. One was about 50 miles to the north. The other was heading toward Tuscaloosa, right for the newsroom, the sprawling university campus, and the only trauma center for 100 miles. 90,000 people were in its path. As Span was out in front of the cameras, Jason Simpson worked behind a bank of computers in the newsroom. He was monitoring radar, social media reports, and several storm chaser teams that contributed to the ABC weather updates. Suddenly, a message popped up on his screen. It was from John Oldshue, a former ABC weatherman and colleague who now chased storms as a volunteer. The message said, yo, we're going to the county line. 
Jason hammered out a quick reply with a grim smile. Old Shoe was gunning for the southern supercell, the one that was threatening Tuscaloosa. A supercell, or a rotating thunderstorm, is a massive kind of storm that features a rotating updraft of wind, which can commonly result in tornadoes. The former weekend weatherman still had good instincts. Old Shoe had been the first intern James Spann ever had, mostly because Spann had never thought to have one until Old Shoe left him a phone message explaining that he needed an internship for college and didn't want to work for anyone else. Eventually, Old Shoe became ABC 3340's resident storm chaser, driving their purpose-built van into the heart of storms to capture footage of tornadoes. One of them nearly killed him when it turned suddenly and destroyed his van. Old Shoe had survived by taking cover in a motel. He retired from broadcasting after that, but his coverage won an Emmy for him and Span. Old Shoe knew how to hunt down twisters. Back out on the interstate, Old Shoe pressed the accelerator to the floor, guiding his deep blue Toyota Highlander through the sheets of rain as the windshield wipers tried to keep up. In the passenger seat, Old Shoe's partner, Ben Greer, read Jason's reply. Jason needed eyewitness confirmation that the storms had produced a tornado. This was called ground truth. It was an integral part of storm warnings. If they had a direct line to ground truth, Span and his team could instantly warn people in the path of that tornado and save lives. Old Shoe looked for an exit that would give them a clear view as Greer prepped cameras and quickly downed a Snickers bar. They needed energy and focus for what came next. They were going to live stream a tornado. Meanwhile, 70 miles to the north, Lieutenant Brett Dawkins stepped out of the travel camper the Cordova Fire Department had been using as a command post. He had his team salvage as many rescue tools and medical supplies as they could from the wrecked fire station. They stashed everything in the camper for fast retrieval as they picked through the rubble of downtown. The lone emergency dispatcher in town had salvaged her surviving phone and radio equipment and set up shop in an ancient train depot not far from the trailer. She was taking calls and furiously writing notes on injury and damage reports, building a list for Dawkins and his team to tackle one by one. Dawkins was only 21 years old, but he was already well-liked in the ranks of Cordova Fire and Rescue. He was a local, and much of his family lived in the surrounding area. His aunt and uncle owned the only restaurant in town. After the tornado that morning, he had been all over the area helping clean up. But right now, Dawkins kept an eye glued on the ominous clouds above him. Something didn't feel right. The wind and rain were picking up, and the sky had an unpleasant greenish-yellow color. He shook off the uneasy feeling and got back to work clearing rubble. A few miles outside Cordova, storm chasers Brian Peters and Tim Coleman were right on the tail of the northern supercell. Coleman kept an eye on the radar as Peters blasted their Chevy Avalanche through the downpour at 95 miles per hour, kicking up huge sheets of water. 
Coleman was frantic. They couldn't see the tornado yet, but he knew it was there. The radar signal was obvious, and Peters was still driving towards it. Coleman turned to his partner and said, You haven't turned southeast yet. It's coming at us. Peters slowed down. There was a twang of fear in his voice as he said, We're going to have a view right up here. Let's just see what we can see. Coleman nodded. He responded, Okay, but keep your engine running. Then the interstate crested a hill and Coleman saw something terrifying. It wasn't just one tornado. There were three of them, then two, then three again. Smaller tendrils spun around the core. It was a multiple vortex tornado. Coleman started filming while Peters called Jason in the newsroom. Jason told Span they had confirmed touchdown and live audio. Span put them over the studio system, and suddenly Peter's voice was being broadcast statewide. He said, We're looking at what appears to be two tornadoes. One has lifted, and the second one is definitely on the ground. We're not going to be able to stay here very long. This thing is coming at us. Span's deep baritone voice calmly replied, Brian, you get out of there. If you've got to hang up, you go. In the background of the phone call, a woman who had also pulled off the highway was screaming, it's right there. To the south, John Oldshoe yanked his camera off its cradle on the dashboard. The giant funnel cloud was crossing in front of them, approaching Tuscaloosa. Greer slid a laptop onto the hood of the Toyota and ran a thin cable to the camera in Old Shoe's hand. They were ready. Old Shoe sent Jason a message in the newsroom. He asked if the live stream was working. Jason said yes. Old Shoe replied that they were looking right at the tornado. They needed to get on the air. Jason checked the feed. A huge black wedge filled the screen. The sky around it was soft and white. There was no mistaking the enormous tornado barreling towards Tuscaloosa. Jason patched through to Span and told him what they were seeing. Two EF-4 tornadoes in two different cities at the same time. Span put them both live on the air. Peter's voice overlapped with Old Shoe's footage. Span turned back to the camera and issued two simultaneous warnings. He said, We've got a large tornado crossing into Cordova, and I've got video of a separate tornado. We are calling a tornado emergency for Tuscaloosa. Be in a safe place. The town of Cordova was eerily quiet, and the sun was shining through a smattering of dark clouds. A woman directing traffic through the rubble of downtown took a drag of her cigarette and looked up at the sky. There were some wispy pink clouds floating to earth. A few raindrops quickly followed. Then she looked closer. They weren't pink clouds. It was insulation from the walls of a destroyed home. The rain suddenly got worse and then became hail. Up the street, a young boy was shouting and pointing. She looked up again and saw a tree branch spinning high in the air above her. 
Then it started to fall, getting bigger and bigger until she saw that it was an entire tree. The boy ran towards the highest point in town, aiming his camera phone. He screamed, look, right there. Lieutenant Dawkins and his team sprinted out of their makeshift command post in the camper and ran towards City Hall, hollering at anyone and everyone that could hear them. Dawkins stood in the doorway leading to the damp basement of the municipal building, waving his arms and yelling, get in here now, run. The EF-4 tornado tore into the town like a freight train with a jet engine. The people huddled in the basement listened as several of the buildings that had survived the EF-3 that morning crumbled like toys. The bank disappeared into the funnel, along with the Piggly Wiggly Market and most of the church. An enormous home on a hill looking over the town was spun around and separated from its foundation. The family hiding inside was hurled out as their house disintegrated around them. As Dawkins watched through a crack in the door, the camper lifted off the ground and plunged into the depot building a few hundred feet away. Then the winds quieted. Everything was calm. One of the other young firefighters jumped to his feet saying, it's gone, that's it, it's over. He tried to run outside, but someone else held him back. The firefighter shrugged them off and kept pushing towards the door. He was worried about the police dispatcher who had holed up alone in the train depot. She had refused to abandon her post and the camper had just crashed into the exact spot where she'd taken cover. They had to find out if she was alive. Someone in the basement yelled, no, get in here, it's just the calm. The wind suddenly reversed direction, blowing just as strong as before. It was the other side of the tornado's core, but it was too late. The firefighter had already shoved his way outside. We'll discuss the survivors of the Cordova EF-4 right after this. Now, back to the story. It was 5.27 p.m. on April 27, 2011, and the small town of Cordova had just been struck by a tornado for the second time that day. At the exact same moment, an enormous EF-4 tornado was tearing into the city of Tuscaloosa. At the Druid City Hospital in Tuscaloosa, the nursing staff prepared for a massive intake of victims. The ER was quiet, as though everyone was holding their breath waiting for the tornado. The warnings from Span and the Storm Chasers had done their job. The DCH Medical Center had almost an hour to get ready. Suddenly, a big plastic garbage bin dropped out of the sky and slammed into the hospital parking lot. The ER staff looked out the front windows. The black wedge of the tornado was coming up the street. The nurses dived over gurneys, protecting their patients' bodies with their own. As it entered the city, the tornado crossed Interstate 359, hurling cars and tipping over semi-trucks. An elderly woman named Minnie Acklin was thrown from her car and became the tornado's first fatality. 
A tornado slammed into the Tuscaloosa Emergency Management Agency building, which had been built in the 70s to survive a nuclear blast. The steel and concrete building shook, and the tornado passed over. The students at the University of Alabama had been preparing for final exams that week. Danielle Downs was at home with her roommate, Lauren Brown, and their friend, Will Stevens. They were holed up in a small hallway under the stairs. They had been trying to study, but were too terrified to focus. They had the television set up in the hallway with them, watching James Spann and the video of the incoming tornado. Danielle frantically texted her sister. The windows were rattling and the wind howled around the house. Suddenly, the power went out. The tornado had ripped apart the local electrical substation. The steel beams of a nearby warehouse were bent double as the roof was torn off. The neighborhood church collapsed. The tornado was upon them. Lauren was on her cell phone with her mother, crying in fear as she clutched Will's hand. Her mother heard him telling Lauren, everything is going to be okay. It's okay, just as the phone call went dead. An enormous oak tree that had grown in the front yard for decades crushed the house. Danielle, Lauren, and Will were killed instantly. The tornado blasted through the neighborhood of Alberta, leveling the elementary school and shopping center there, leaving nothing but a few piles of debris on the concrete foundations. The local fire station was destroyed, stopping the station clock at 5.08 p.m. exactly. Chelsea Thrash was at her boyfriend's apartment not far from Lauren and Danielle and had taken cover in the bathroom. She huddled against the heavy porcelain bathtub with her class notes and a few snacks. The wind was picking up and it had become a roar. Chelsea peeked out the door as the house began to vibrate. She saw the front door of the apartment disappear into the vortex. The walls of the bathroom shook violently and then everything went black as she lost consciousness. The Tuscaloosa EF4 left the city limits at 5.37 p.m. It had left a six-mile path of destruction through Tuscaloosa. Now it was heading for the city of Birmingham. Meteorologist Jim Stefkovich and his team at the National Weather Service Station in Birmingham had direct lines of communication to SPAN and other broadcasters to provide up-to-the-minute weather data. The NWS team had been covering the super outbreak since the first winds picked up over Oklahoma several days before. Now the storm was literally pounding on their front door. As the sirens whined outside, the Weather Service building was buffeted by straight-line winds. In the center of the building was a concrete storm-proof bunker built specifically for days like this. As the EF4 tornado drew closer to Birmingham, Stefkovich gave the order for everyone to take shelter in the bunker. The beeping radar screens and crackling radios echoed in an empty room as the Weather Service personnel gathered behind two feet of masonry. They were safe. They were also lucky, along with everyone else in Birmingham. The tornado veered north and missed the city by less than four miles. The twister had been a mile and a half wide. It was a narrow miss. 
By the time the tornado dissipated north of the city at approximately 6.14 p.m., it had chewed up over 80 miles of Alabama in the course of 90 minutes. Up north, the Cordova tornado had been on the ground for over two hours, scouring a path of over 116 miles. It had lifted back into the storm cell a few minutes before 6 p.m. The fire and rescue squad was overwhelmed, trying to address the fresh damage. Brett Dawkins emerged from the basement of Cordova City Hall into a wasteland of debris and carnage. There was a strong smell of pine, and natural gas was thick in the air. People were bloodied and dazed, stumbling or sitting on the wreckage of their homes and businesses. Dawkins recognized one of the men running towards him. It was his uncle, Mike. He was pointing up the street. He said, Jackson and Bev are trapped. The whole damn house is on them. Nearby, Dawkins found a tractor that had survived the twister. He fired it up and cleared a path through the rubble to the remains of the fire station. He loaded up what remained of the gear from the wrecked trucks, including airbags, medical, and digging equipment. He brought it all downtown and set up a triage facility for the squad. Then he headed towards where his family was trapped. The rest of the fire and rescue squad made their way through the rubble of downtown and the surrounding blocks. Amanda Hodge, one of the firefighters, was heading for the remains of the destroyed Piggly Wiggly Market when she noticed a small figure curled up in the middle of the road. It was a young boy about eight years old. She hollered for Chief Harbison, the head of the Cordova Fire Department, who was driving the only operational rescue truck. Amanda dropped to her knees next to the boy. He was covered in mud and blended in with the dirt and debris all around him. She tried to feel his pulse. The chief sped over, setting up an EKG as Amanda did CPR. She noticed a huge open hole in the boy's shoulder, leading to a black mark all the way down his body. She knew immediately he'd been struck by lightning. She kept up with the compressions and watched the heart monitor there was no sign of life. The chief quietly told her to stop. The boy was gone. But Amanda was a mother, and she couldn't just give up. They had cleaned the mud off of the boy's face, and Amanda recognized him. He was one of her son's classmates. Chief Harbison understood. He was a father, too. But they had a job to do. Chief Harbison gently pulled her away. They found the boy's brother in the parking lot of the market. His body was terribly twisted, and many of his bones were broken. Their friend had just been pulled out of the debris, unconscious and bleeding profusely. His mother was found dead along the road nearby. Meanwhile, Brett Dawkins finally made it to his uncle's house. The structure was off its foundation, leaning hard to one side, like a collapsed line of dominoes. Brett could hear his Aunt Bev's voice calling for help from somewhere underneath the floor. Dawkins located where Bev's voice was coming from and fired up his chainsaw. He cut a hole in the floor just wide enough for him to fit. He pulled back the flooring and grabbed a flashlight, crouching to squeeze under the house. 
He shined the light in the dark crawl space. He found his Aunt Bev first, her right arm trapped under a wall and her neck bent severely. She could hardly breathe. Then Dawkins pivoted and the light illuminated his cousin, Jackson. Bev said, he's gone. She couldn't see her son on the other side of the wall that had trapped her arm, but she could feel him. He had grown cold as they were trapped under the house. The fallen house had come to rest on Jackson's shoulders. Now his body was supporting the entire structure, the only thing keeping it from crushing his mother's neck. In death, he had saved her life. Dawkins had to move fast. He jumped back out of the hole and returned with several items that seemed silly to Bev. They looked like pizza boxes. But they weren't pizza boxes. They were airbags, and Brett quickly placed them under the support beams of the house. He was going to get her out. He connected the bags to an air compressor, and with a powerful hiss of air, the house began to lift. Bev was free, and most importantly, she was alive. Back in Tuscaloosa, a giant red and white fire truck with a number seven painted on the side was crawling its way through the rubble-strewn streets. Riding in the back was 27-year-old paramedic Adam Watley. The truck and the firefighters were heading towards the remains of the Rosedale neighborhood. But when they arrived, there were no buildings left. There was only a flat field of asphalt and piles of debris. Even the trees and traffic signs were gone. Then Watley noticed the refrigerators. They poked out of the wreckage as small, morbid landmarks of where homes used to be. He knew some of them showed where the firefighters would likely find bodies. As Watley and the rest of the firefighters jumped out of the truck, they were quickly approached by surviving residents. Watley took a look at a man's gashed arm. One of the other firemen, an ex-Marine, nodded towards Watley and eyed the more severely injured people gathering around them. They only had a few men and supplies. They were going to have to triage in the street deciding which people needed immediate help, which ones could wait, and who was beyond saving. These were terrible decisions to make, but they were necessary if they were going to save lives. The squad was quickly outnumbered by the injured residents. The ex-Marine pointed a woman towards Wadley. She was carrying something small clutched against her chest. It was a baby girl. Watley examined her and realized there was no hope. He tried to find the words, but was interrupted by a man carrying another injured baby. The man said, this came through my window. Watley took the two children towards the big rescue truck that had just arrived. They were taking the babies to the hospital whether they had a chance or not. They couldn't simply leave them in the street. Watley put the two infants on a gurney and told the driver to roll out. Suddenly, the ambulance lurched to a halt as a man pounded on the back door. Watley opened it. The man was bleeding badly. Watley started to tell him he couldn't take him when he noticed what was in the man's bloody hands. It was another baby. 
Watley quickly took the third child into the truck. He started CPR on the babies as they made their way towards DCH Medical Center. The tornado had narrowly missed the hospital, passing the building by only a few blocks. Normally, it would have been seven minutes to the hospital, but on April 27, 2011, it would take 45. We'll return to the harrowing rescue right after this. Now, back to the story. A major search and rescue is occurring. Perhaps you can hear in the background rubble being moved by, by my count, about 30 men and women looking for family and relatives. I'm told that there is a one-year-old and a five-year-old little girl stuck under this rubble. There are many people missing here. It was 6 p.m. on April 27th. Less than an hour had passed since the EF4 tornado left Tuscaloosa. The fire department had to set up a makeshift morgue in a parking lot because there were so many bodies. Adam Watley was in Rescue 27 making round trips from the parking lot to the hospital. The truck had run out of medical supplies almost immediately, and now it was shuttling survivors by the dozen, packing as many people into the back as possible. Watley knew the scenes of death and destruction would haunt him for the rest of his career. The three babies he was transporting hadn't survived the trip to the hospital. Now, more bodies were piling up. Then, as the rescue truck returned to the parking lot, a group had arrived with a college student on a makeshift stretcher. She couldn't feel or move her legs, but she was conscious and alert. It was Chelsea Thrash, the girl who had been sucked out of the second-story apartment bathroom. She had landed on a rock in the courtyard of the destroyed building. Her spine was broken, but she was lucid. As Watley looked down at her on the stretcher, he suddenly found hope. Watley loaded her into the back of Rescue 27 and yelled at the driver, Let's run this hot. He was going to make sure this girl made it. And she did. Chelsea went into surgery, but she had a long road ahead. A piece of her rib was taken out to repair her vertebra. She went into intensive physical therapy, and four months later, she walked into her first day of class. The final tornado to strike Alabama on the 27th touched down at 8.12 p.m., it was rated an EF-4 and was the 62nd tornado in the state that day. The twister chewed through 44 miles of the countryside and took seven lives before it slowly retracted back into the dark clouds at 9.09 p.m. The outbreak was over. It affected some people for the second time as well as a lot more new people. So I think people are beginning to realize that it's such an overwhelming disaster um, that it's going to be a while before things can get back to normal. Cordova was the only town in Alabama to suffer two direct hits in one day. Brett Dawkins and the rescue squad worked for three days straight. When Brett finally returned home, he found his house had vanished into the belly of the tornado. But he would rebuild, along with the rest of Cordova. The final victim in Tuscaloosa was found in the rubble of an apartment building five days after the tornado. The final death toll from that day was 253. 
President Obama declared a federal state of emergency for the region and visited Tuscaloosa a few days after the outbreak. The loss of life has been heartbreaking, especially in Alabama. In the ABC newsroom, James Spann was hearing good news out of Coleman, the town hit by the tornado that he had used as an example of a debris ball. That tornado had been an EF4, an incredibly powerful twister. The town had suffered a direct hit, but the residents had 16 minutes warning. Spann sent Jason Simpson to Coleman with a camera crew where he reported that the hospital there had survived and there were no fatalities in the town. We heard the weather guy say 100-mile-an-hour winds, and then the power and the cable went out, and it hit us. Span himself went to visit Cordova, leading a caravan of volunteer families to help with the cleanup. Span's family bonded with a family in Cordova, the Adamses, and over the next six months, the Spans helped build them a new home. Their story was repeated in many towns in the weeks following the tornado. All over the area, communities were coming together to support each other. I wanted my children to see how blessed they are to still have a house to, and place to sleep at night and to have food. So we just bought up some water and food and just walking and finding people that need help. It's just material. It can all be replaced. Now I've got to try to go sort through that and see if I can save anything. They, you know, brought drinks, food. They're a bunch of great people. And I want to thank all of them for coming through here and, and, and it's greatly appreciated. People have got to have people. And that's what it takes to make the world go green. Volunteers showed up from all across America bringing supplies, food and water, and construction materials. Bo Jackson, professional football and baseball player and a native of Alabama, began a charity bike ride across the state. Joined by a series of other athletes, Jackson visited small towns all across the state, including Cordova. He ended the ride in Tuscaloosa with an enormous gathering of survivors and first responders. He raised $600,000 towards the relief effort in the year after the super outbreak. He said, I was so amazed at how resilient people can be after a tragedy. To be six or seven years old and have it all taken away, that's enough to sink anybody. The cleanup would take nearly four years and cost $11 billion. The super outbreak set records for the most tornadoes in a single day and a single month and very nearly broke the records for most violent and deadly single tornadoes. To this day, meteorologists point to the 2011 super outbreak as an incredible outlier in their studies of tornado damage. The National Weather Service ran a comprehensive analysis of the super outbreak, including their forecasts, successful warning rate, and indexes of damage and wind produced by the tornadoes. As a result, the false warning rate dropped by nearly 40% in Birmingham and the surrounding areas. Stefkovich and his team at the NWS office also took on a new mission of public education, using social media to communicate storm warnings and information. In May 2011, the month after the super outbreak, an EF5 tornado destroyed the town of Joplin, Missouri. 
This tornado was more powerful than any of the super outbreak. The images of the aftermath dominated the news. Two years later, Tim Samaras, a veteran storm chaser and leader in the storm chaser community, was killed by a tornado in El Reno, Oklahoma. His tragic and surprising death brought a new wave of public attention to storm chasing and tornado outbreaks. Brian Peters, the chaser that had covered the second Cordova tornado, was distraught when he heard that four people had been killed. He turned his grief into inspiration and devoted himself to teaching storm spotting classes and training a new generation of informed spotters and chasers. At one weather conference where Peters was speaking, he was approached by a teenage girl. Her family stood a few feet away watching. She asked him if she could give him a hug. Brian was confused, but he agreed and asked her why. She said, you saved my life. You saved my family's life. Brian choked up as the girl explained that she and her family lived in a mobile home not far from Cordova. When his phone call was broadcast over the radio by Span, they heard him and took shelter. The tornado turned their home into a twisted hunk of metal and glass. The girl showed Brian a picture of the aftermath. It was an image he would never forget. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. For more information on the 2011 super outbreak, amongst the many sources we used, we found What Stands in a Storm by Kim Cross to be extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll dive into another of nature's terrible catastrophes. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 